you seek the key. But first, you must learn the ways of precision, craft, and performance with Acura's all-electric ZDX. With a premium Bang & Olufsen sound system up to a 313-mile range and a Type S variant with an estimated 500 horsepower, the ZDX is their most powerful SUV yet. Unlock the energy when you visit Acura.com to order yours today. Live from the NASDAQ market site overlooking New York City's Times Square, this is Fast Money. I'm Melissa Lee. Your traders on the desk are Tim Seymour, Karen Feinerman, Dan Nathan, and Guy Dami. Tonight on Fast, you will hear from Steve Eisman of Big Short Fame. He'll tell us where he is spotting the next big market opportunity. Plus, an earnings alert on United Airlines. That's not getting a lift after reporting results. We'll break down the headlines. And speaking of earnings, the options market is betting big on a big move. From Netflix, when reports tomorrow, we will break down the action. But we begin with the race to new records. Stocks breaking out as bank earnings season gets underway. J.P. Morgan gaining 3% on strong results, and the company says the consumer is holding strong. Meantime, Bank of America reports tomorrow, but one of its biggest shareholders is getting even more bullish. Berkshire seeking permission from the Fed to boost its stake in the bank beyond the 10% threshold. So did Jamie and Warren... Just give the okay to ride this rally to new record highs. Why yeah. not? I mean, those are the two. I mean, if, if those two say it's okay, who am I to argue with those two guys, right? <laughs> Back to you. Back to you, Mel. That's it? I, look, I think, look, the J.P. Morgan quarter was fine, and we'll talk about banks, but just to put it in perspective, you know, tangible book in J.P. Morgan, $60, stocks $120. Even I, in my lame mind, can do that math and tell you, book, tang- you know, to tangible book, it's two times tangible book right now. That is a pretty big uh, premium in this environment, I think. In terms of Mr. Buffett, he's actually sitting on a record amount of cash as well. Maybe that's why he wants to deploy it in more of these banks. But the one indicator that he's looked at his entire career, the Wilshire 5000 over GDP in the United States, I mean, that is flashing as red as it maybe has ever flashed. So, listen, I've been skeptical. I've been wrong. And the VIX below 14 to me is madness. But with that said, you know, the market seems to be full speed ahead. And that's a VIX that's down 40 percent in eight sessions. So yeah. it tells you what investors, it's been a roller coaster ride. And I think the sentiment still is this, this, this tug of war. Uh, look, back to what J.P. Morgan, Jamie Dimon, what banks could be telling us. The biggest money center bank told you that the consumer is not only healthy, that they see wages and they see spending. Um, their balance sheet's never been better. Uh, their, their, their bar was so high going into this number and they beat it. Um, that's what makes this very impressive. How it trades from here, it's hard to know. Guys talking about where the valuation is, um, I don't think it's expensive at all, especially if it is best in class. Um, but I think, you know, it, it's been easy to push back on banks and say they're not all trading like this. Um, but, you know, when I look at J.P. Morgan on a one-year one basis or a two-year basis has outperformed the S&P, um, you know, that, that tells you that banks that are run well, uh, that are efficient in capital, and even when fees are in their face and there's compression in a lot of different banking areas, efficiencies and cost savings and giving capital back to investors is something yeah, that works. T- that's a pretty narrow argument because you're just talking about J.P. Morgan. If you look at the investment banks, they're down Goldman and Morgan 25% from their two. But they're not money center well, banks. Hold on a second. They're trying to be more like them. Okay. And then when you think about the regional banks, they're down... 13, 14% from their 2018 highs, stuck in a range, in a downtrend. So I'm just saying, like, I don't disagree with you about J.P. Morgan. You guys have heard me say it quite frequently. And, and uh, you know, like, 
buy J.P. Morgan. Have a ball. You know, it just made a new all-time yeah, high today. I, I have. It's, no, and and I, it's, it's a good time. time. I'm but, feeling but pretty lot, good about it. But most of the other banks in the U.S. <laughs> don't act particularly well, and they don't share the same characteristics that you just said that J.P. Morgan does relative to the S&P 500. So that's but, a bad but, sign in your Well, view. I'm just saying it's, it's not broad. Kind of it, you know what I mean? But, so it, but, but, okay, so let me counter to that, yeah. because I, I don't think Morgan Stanley and Goldman Sachs are playing in anywhere the same pool. It's not even about better or worse. I think they're different businesses. But when I look at Bank of America and I look at Citibank, I think we can start to have a similar conversation. Mm-hmm. And yes, I don't think those banks have kept pace with J.P. Morgan, but those would be the diversified uh, both exposure to the U.S. economy, the global economy, banking, consumer loans, mortgages. I, I like them both as well. I mean, I agree. Uh, J.P. Morgan, there was a lot to like. Uh, the net interest margin did come in a little bit, as you would expect, during pressure on rates that we saw. Uh, loans a little better spread. Uh, the thing to me that really stood out um, here and in Citibank was how strong credit cards were. Right. That business was up huge for both of them. And so that tells you the consumer is really spending whether or not, you know, you always talk about their balance sheet not being in as good shape. It's been the worst for we've seen in a decade. They're still out there spending. They're still out there feeling comfortable. So that's interesting to me. That hopefully reads well for uh, retail. We won't see that for a little while. But so J.P. Morgan, even Jamie Dimon, who, as you know, I love. Almost first named him. Yeah, I did. You know, know. I can do that. You can. You're allowed. He doesn't need to answer. So (laughs) he talked about uh, return on tangible common equity, 18 percent, which is a really, really excellent number. But he also said, look, this is peak. These are these are peak numbers. We're not going to see forever something like, you know, the environment that's perfect. Um, Paraphrasing. But so there's a lot to like. But I think there's a little bit of caution in there as well. And on the flip side, I actually thought Goldman Sachs wasn't that bad. It wasn't that bad that it was opened down a few dollars. There's a lot lumpy in there, right? Marking down Uber, marking down some other private equity. Right. That to me is very lumpy. It doesn't it, it, it should be sort of ignored. I would ignore it on the upside if they had a big gain. So that's sort of getting kind of interesting. But I, so J.P. Morgan, Bank of America, and Citi. I'm with Tim. I like Bank of America and Citi um, as well. When I own them all, I don't know if uh, Warren Buffett will be able to buy more stock. This has been a long-standing. Ten percent has been a threshold for right. a long, long time. But in terms of these particular banks, the ones that have the broadest businesses that touch the consumer and, yeah. and the and the globe, um, these businesses doing well. In terms of Warren Buffett wanting to buy more of Bank of America, yes. regardless of whether or not right. he is is allowed to. Can we extrapolate that this is good news for the markets, which are sitting at you know one percent away from record highs? I don't know. I don't know if him wanting to buy more Bank America says I can't find value anywhere else. I don't know. I'm there happy as no Bank America's shareholder, <laughs> yeah. right? Well, um, I, I just you know I want to drop today's earnings. We've been waiting for earnings season. It's a, it's yeah. nice to be able to talk about bottom up stories, even if we're talking about top down about the bottom up. But but you know the, the trade deal on Friday is not something I'm doing cartwheels about. I don't think phase one is anything to get excited about. In fact, I don't really even understand phase one. I certainly don't think we want it. Um, but it's not about us and them. It's about where's the economy and, and is it is it all in right now? And no, it's not all in. Uh, and in fact, y- you could say that Jamie Dimon's assessment of the U.S. consumer is at peak labor. Um, and it's not that C- CFOs and CEOs are, are terribly confident with the economy right now. We know they are not. So um, I, I think for, for, for the stock market, I just want to be clear, um, being uh, cautious on the economy, being cautious on the trade deal does not mean that certain stocks can't continue to go higher. And that's what we Yeah, seen. but you know, I, I just got to make this point. Guys, we were in mid-July, you know, Q2 earnings uh, or, you know, Q2 earnings period, then go back to 
you know, late April, early May, that was Q1 earnings period. We had the same sort of vibe. You know, the markets were at highs. We were kind of, what are we going to discount? What are we going to break out to new highs? That's how you started this conversation, Mel. And I'm just going to tell you, it sets up almost identical to those prior two periods. We are now back, for all intents and purposes, at a new all-time high. We will be there within a couple of days. And then the question you have to ask yourself is, what are we discounting, right? Expectations were very low into earnings. We know that. We've been talking about that for a couple of weeks. So let's say you come in above that. That. You have these early beats, stocks move, and then as we make a new high, then what? Because to your point, Tim, I don't think anybody after we had the weekend to think about what this trade deal was. It was a whole lot of nothing. It's like NAFTA 2.0. It's like all the other stuff that we get promised oh, as a huge advancement. Getting pulled so, up over Brexit so, today is also something that's a little weird. I, I agree with you. But so, I, I, so, I, so my, my only point is those last two times when we had this new high, at the back end of earnings season, what did we get? We got 7% drawdowns right afterwards, and they usually corresponded with some disappointment about trade. And what's different this time is that we have a Fed, you know what I mean, that has been easing over the same time Semiconductors period. continue to make all-time highs. Semiconductors total are 10%. Outlier. Total outlier. But isn't that the ultimate sign of cyclicality and the ultimate sign of the global economy? I, I don't know. We'll I mean, see when we've they been hearing report. that, that <laughs> you can't get higher, but in fact, they, that, that's a great-looking chart right now. And I, you know, I'm not telling you I feel great about the world. I'm just right. Telling you that some of these things, in the face of what hasn't been good news, go higher. Real quick on the banks. In terms of JP Morgan, two times normal volume today it traded. It closed basically where the previous all time high was, which I think was March of 2018 or so. So, much like Apple, who, by the way, Apple blew right through it, I mean, you have a potential for a bit of a double top here. It, it would make sense if you're trading this on a day like today to take some profits, but I would understand if you want to continue to ride this JPM train. And by the way, I think the restraining order is now... It's over? It's over, so you're good to go with <laughs> okay, J.D. Okay, fantastic. <laughs> Our next guest is three names that he says are going to drive us to new highs. Chris Verona of Strategus is over at the Plasma. Chris, what are you looking at? Hey, Melissa, well, let's start with the name of the day. That's obviously J.P. Morgan. I just want to put this in some context. Remember, back to the 2016 lows, J.P.M. was a $50 stock. It goes 50 to 120 and then it hits a wall in January of 2018 at about 120 and we get just two years of dead money. Now, where was the S&P two years ago? Roughly the same level, 2,900, 2,950. So let's zoom in here to these two years of indifference, and let's see if we can learn a little bit about where this one goes next. January of 18, 120. Another failure at 120. Another failure at 120. Four or five times along the way, we've been unable to overcome those prior highs. Why do I think this time is a little bit different? Well, For one, the moving averages are now all upward sloping again, 50 back above the 200. And I think importantly, the yield curve is steepening. It was flattening, this whole move now steepening. So there's a change in character in this chart. When we look at this range, 120 to about 90, 30 point range, you get a breakout here above 120, you're talking about $150 stock. We think ultimately that's where this thing is going. One of our favorite big cap bank plays. Second name, in terms of a bellwether, deer, industrial, been at the center of the storm this entire China trade. Stuck here near 170. We've been here before. We failed in the past. What's a little bit different this time? The Bears had every opportunity to finish this thing off four, five, six weeks ago, and they couldn't. They had it on the ropes, but they couldn't deliver the fatal punch. Boom, come right back at the highs, 170. This is about a 30-point range. You're looking at a $200 and $205 stock if you can get a breakout here. We think you do. Again, 50 back above the 200. We held support. 
200-day now upward sloping. So the technicals are improving, even though not much price progress was made here. And then lastly, so we have a bank, we have industrials, and we have some tech. This is Alphabet. I think this is another example. This is an $800 billion company. Another example of a big mega cap bellwether acting better than the consensus is giving it credit for. 20% drawdown in spring of 18, another 20% drawdown last year, and another 20% drawdown earlier this year. So we're looking at three bear markets in this chart over the last two years. I don't think we get a fourth. We have the technicals improving, 50 back above the 200. You held support the other day. 1240, 1250 is where we trade today. We're talking about a 300-point range from high to low. You get a breakout here, you're looking at a $1,500 stock. So between Alphabet, between J.P. Morgan, between Deere, these are bellwethers sending a very powerful message about this market that we think it's going up. Come on over, Chris. Bring them over. Will will bring the chair in. Come on, Will. Will does an amazing job. You know, by the way, Will is a Harvard grad, much I like yourself. That. I know that. Yes. <laughs> and he went to the actual university, not the online academy. <laughs> I'm going to leave that where it is. Um, in terms of these three stocks, Chris, are these three stocks outliers compared to their peers, or are they representative of their sector? Well, I, I think what's remarkable here is the market knows a lot more than I know or you know or you know. And I think when you look at some of these bellwethers over the last couple of weeks, across all different sectors, right, industrials, Deere, J.P. Morgan, banks, even Citigroup uh, acting better, Taiwan Semi uh, in the semi, Samsung, big global bellwether. These things are breaking out of two-year ranges, right? So how many more of these do we need to see before directionally up? has to become the base case. And I think that's the environment we're in here. And I love the fact that the IMF downgraded growth today. I, I, I love it. I think it's such a great contrarian signal that just as things look like they start to get better, the IMF wants to take the other side. But Chris, couldn't you say for every deer there's a cat, for right. every that's, Google there's an Amazon, for every J.P. Morgan there's the regionals? I mean, like, they kind of balance each other off in a lot of ways. And I don't really see picking out three. I, listen, they're all those are good-looking charts, yeah. okay? They, they are. And those companies, they, they probably have pre, pretty decent fundamentals, good valuation. But I can find another one. You know, I'd say I'd argue to you then say that Amazon's almost more important than Google. I would say that I, I just don't know. You know, I mean, you know, I, it's certainly a very good point. But let's rewind the clock back 12 months ago. Right. Sitting here, October of 2018, there was only one place in the world to make any money. It was Fang. Right? It was the only game in town that worked today. You have other parts of the world getting better. Europe trades great. Even parts of EEM better. Industrials, for the first time in two years, show some signs of life. I think what's notable about that sector, if you look at it equally weighted, it's already broken out, right? So the average industrial stock is actually trading better than the CAT or the Boeing. So there's some signs under the surface that, hey, maybe directionally up, which is the least populated call, is the right one. Implicit to all of these charts, though, Chris, is your broader call that the markets will, in fact, hit new record highs. And well beyond a percent higher? or Yeah, I, I think this is a directional move. You know, we have the combination of bear sentiment and good seasonals. That's a powerful or potent cocktail, I think, for this market to rally into the back half of the year here. Okay. Chris, great to see you. Thank, Thank you. you. Chris Verone of Strategus. John Deere, I mean, it looks very much like Apple looked a couple weeks ago, the same way that J.P. Morgan looked. This, the Deere 172 is the same level of trade, I think, in January 2018. I mean, valuation, I don't know, 16 times in this environment. I think it's a little rich. They report on November 17th. We'll see. Again, if you're trading it, if you've enjoyed this run-up, and it has been a decent run-up, I think you take profits here in DE. All right, coming up, United taking flight after reporting results. We'll break down what is fueling those gains. Plus, you know him from the big short. Steve Eisman is back, and he's ready to give his next best idea. We're live from Times Square in New York City. Much more Fast Money right after this. 
electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. Welcome back to Fast Money. Time for an earnings whiff. United Airlines and Interactive Brokers both just reported results. Eric Chemney standing by in Interactive. We begin with Phil LeBeau on United. Hey, Phil. And Melissa, one reason why the stock is moving higher is because this is a company that beat the street by 10 cents earning $4.07 a share. The consensus was for three ninety-seven. Revenue coming in at $11.38 billion, just as shy of expectations. But when you go with the numbers within the numbers, generally speaking, this was an encouraging third quarter. Let's start first off with passenger per available seat mile, passenger revenue per available seat mile, up 1.7% in the mid-range of their guidance. Pre-tax margin better than expected at 12.1%. And yes, unit cost was slightly higher than the guidance of 2%. But keep in mind, they had some issues in terms of pulling back flights to China and Hong Kong, which meant fewer seats going over to that part of the uh, part of the world. They have raised their full year guidance. It is now in the range of 1125 to 1225 a share. It was in the range of 1050 to $12 a shares. Not only that, they are now saying that they are ahead of pace to exceed their expect to at least meet or exceed expectations for next year's full year earnings of between eleven and thirteen dollars a share. Remember, tomorrow morning, live on Squawk Box, an exclusive interview with Oscar Munoz, CEO of United Airlines. We'll talk about the third quarter. More importantly, we'll talk about their outlook, not only in terms of demand on the leisure and the corporate side. But what they're expecting with the 737 MAX, remember, Melissa, it's been pulled off the schedule until early next year. But already we're starting to hear rumblings from people in the airline industry who are saying, really, do we really think that this plane will be back at the beginning of next year? Is it more likely it might get pushed further into the first quarter? We'll talk about that with Oscar Munoz. Bill, is it safe to say that United's guidance is usually conservative? Yes. Yeah, generally okay. speaking, not wildly conservative, right. but relative to other airlines, they are considered to be one of the more conservative uh, companies when it comes to guidance. Okay. Phil, thanks. Phil LeBeau in Chicago for us, which makes this raise guidance even better looking. I, I think that raise is pretty pretty decent. I mean, they, they raised the bottom end of the range by over, of just about 10%. Um, they've, they've given you a sense that where their business is. They've given you a little bit more visibility into 2020, which is excellent. Um, and, it, and it shows that they can be more efficient with, with you know, their, their core business, which is what people are always worried about with airlines. It's, it's how costs and how capacity tend to spiral out of control. It's why they trade at multiples that really belie the profitability of these companies over the last four or five years. So I like airlines. They are very cyclical as well. Um, they're near kind of the middle to the bottom part of their ranges. I think you own them here. Agree. I like airlines. Uh, you know, Delta reported the other day wasn't great. I thought it was sort of overdone. It wasn't terrible. Um, I'll be interested to see what they have to say about the 737 MAX. That's sort of a mixed bag of when it comes back, because for some who don't have big exposure, they've been able to pick up right, extra revenue. But it's been expensive for Delta. That's expensive revenue. Right. Um, you know, you cost, time right. And all that. So that so it's a little bit of a double edged sword. I don't know how that's going to shake out ultimately. But I mean, I agree with you. the multiples are cheap, as airline multiples should be, given how cyclical the business is. But 
Um, I like them here. Still long. You know, you take a look at United and you think they've been doing okay without the 737 Max. It's funny because I'm looking over. And you put I'm that so, back in and that's more capacity. I'm cheating right. over Dan's shoulder here. He's got a great chart a up. <laughs> But it has been in this uptrend for quite some time now. And actually, that guidance raise probably makes United cheaper than Delta at these levels. So against what is a pretty well-defined stop at this point, I think UAL is actually pretty interesting here. All right, let's move on to Interactive Brokers. That stock in the red. Off its lows of the after-hour session, though, Eric Chami is back at headquarters with the latest. Eric. That's right, Melissa. So the stock was down about 3% right away, and it's now come back to flat. But look, the real story is that Interactive Brokers down about 10% since announcing that it would eliminate fees on September 26th, the company on the conference call a few minutes ago saying, look, we're trying to create the best trading platform for customers. For a lot of customers, the word best means zero commissions. But they're going to make money off of this because if you have a zero commission account, you're going to get your order routed to a liquidity provider. Those liquidity providers, they will pay interactive brokers. So that's how the company is going to make up that money. So the quarter that we just got, remember that quarter ended September 30th. This was announced September 26th. It's almost like it doesn't matter because the stock was year-to-date flat. It's basically flat now. What's going to happen now starting this quarter when these changes take effect? You can compare to their competitors. Schwab's up 12% since it's announced fee cuts. TD's up 7%. E-Trade's up 7%. Interactive Brokers has been down, so they're lagging right now based on that. So the story isn't so much what they said in the third quarter, but what they're going to be doing here in the fourth quarter. Melissa, back to you. All right, Eric, thank you. Eric Chemi. Um, and it can be argued that some of these other businesses that have actually gone up after announcing zero fees or cut fees is because they have other businesses that they're not as dependent on trading revenues. Schwab is one of those. Mm-hmm. That, you know, it's interesting. Schwab probably wins to this because they can cut it to zero, let their competitors right. fall by the wayside and then do what they want. So I understand what Eric is saying here in terms of the liquidity providers, these dark, all that stuff, except that that's going to go away over time as well. These businesses continue to get marginalized and constrained. So at 20 times forward earnings, which is where Interactive Brokers is right now, in my opinion, in this environment, even though the stock has been cut in half over the last couple of years, it's still too expensive. Yeah, I would just say, like in Ameritrade, you know, this thing has gotten nailed. I think hit the hardest of all these. And, you know, to me, I think this stock, you know, estimates are coming down for next year, and they probably have gotten kind of cheap. And uh, I look at this and I say to myself, you're probably going to see some consolidation in the next year, and you want to buy the ones that are going to be consolidated. And I suspect that Ameritrade is going to be one of them. Well, I mean, if you don't like banks, I don't think you can like these guys. And, and if you think about the places where their business might be growing, they have a lot of loan exposure. They have a lot of consumer credit exposure to the extent that they've reached out into that world. I, I'm kind of neutral here. I mean, I, I don't think um, I, I think these guys have a better handle on their business than we do, frankly, which means that they are into areas where they have uh, very sticky asset pools. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's really what it accounts. It, it's about their balance sheet. Um, but I do think if you look at the core bread and butter business, it is kind of, as we said, going the way of the dodo bird. And I, I don't think you need to chase them here. Right. All right. We've got much more ahead on Fast Money. Here is what's coming up next. The next Big Short. Steve Eisman of Big Short fame is here. He'll tell us where he's spotting the next major market move. And later, it's jailbreak time. Insiders getting the go-ahead to start selling two recent IPOs. We have the lockup lowdown when Fast Money returns. Wouldn't it be great to have all your investment and retirement accounts in one place? 
Yahoo Finance, our sponsor today, makes it easy. I use it to put my investment account and 401k accounts into one hub and get expert tips that help me confidently manage my money. For more than 25 years, Yahoo Finance has been the brand behind every great investor. Whether you're a seasoned investor or are looking for that extra guidance, Yahoo Finance gives you all the tools and data you need in one place. They're the number one finance destination, producing a holistic look at the financial news cycle, including breaking news, original editorial perspectives, analyst ratings, independent research, customizable charts, and so much more. Securely link your brokerage accounts for a unified view of your wealth including 401k and other investments. A comprehensive perspective is what sets apart great investors, and it's how Yahoo Finance ensures you have the insight to look at your wealth in its entirety. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor, yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. That's yahoofinance.com. Welcome back to Fast Money. You may know our next guest from The Big Short. He was one of the investors who shorted the housing bubble before it crashed more than 10 years ago. He is now eyeing a few names that he is shorting this time around. Let's bring in Steve Eisman of Newberger Berman. Steve, welcome back to Fast Money. Great to have you with us. Thank you. Good to be um, obviously, for The Big Short, that was sort of a, a macro call. Are there macro shorts in this market? Are, are there big bubbles? Are there inefficiencies that you see? I, I don't see a systemic uh-huh. problem. I, you know, the banking system is in... Is in the best shape of the 30 years I've been analyzing banks. You know, is there going to be a recession next year or the year after? I don't know. I mean, I think we are, we are in a global industrial recession as we speak. Um, that's not the same thing as a recession because industrial companies are about 10 to 15 percent of the economy. But I, I think when the industrial companies report, it'll be pretty universally weak, mm-hmm. almost without exception. A, a lot of people have made a lot about how rates have been close to zero or below zero for a very long time. Are there any sorts of bubbles that have formed around that dynamic or no? I mean, are there pockets of bubbles? I mean, QE to me is what I like to call monetary policy for rich people, meaning it raises asset prices. It has zero impact on the economy. It actually has some some very negative aspects to it. In other words, if you're a saver, it's not helping you, it's hurting you. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I don't find QE is helpful to the actual economy. It just causes asset prices to go up. Now, is that a bubble? I mean, the market's not that expensive, so it's not that bubblicious, but it definitely has caused asset prices to go up. Okay. Um, let's talk about some of your individual ideas. Uh, I think that all the times that I've spoken to you over the past couple of years, you've been short Deutsche Bank. Are you still short Deutsche Bank? Still short Deutsche Bank. Okay. Three years. I'm, three years in running. Yeah. What will cause you to take off that short? Because it has already hit record low after record low after record low. The problem Deutsche Bank now suffers from is they're trying trying to shrink themselves to profitability. And one thing we have learned time and time and time again post-crisis is that's impossible. And so they're going to shrink, and then they're going to become less profitable. And I think the stock goes even lower, and then we'll see. Does it go under? I mean, this, I mean, this is all this is happening not a funding, as... Banks go out of business for funding issues. Uh-huh. There's no funding issues at, at this time of Deutsche Bank. This is purely a profitability problem. And is this an idiosyncratic short, or do you also see opportunities to short other, or have you been short other German banks? Like, I mean, Commerce Bank. Not other German mind. banks, other European banks. The problem, the pro- uh-huh. when you take a step back and say, like, can we boil it down to a paragraph or a sentence, like, what does a bank do for a living? What a bank does for a living is it sells you access to its balance sheet for a price. And so if you want to calculate 
What's the absolute return of a bank? It's return on assets, the whole balance sheet. Then you just multiply that by the leverage, and you get the ROE. So ROE times L equals ROE. Simple formula. The problem with European banks is that they have sold access to their balance sheets too cheaply for decades. And the ROA has even gone down post-crisis, and the leverage has come down for regulatory reasons. And that's the problem with European... Deutsche Bank is just really the extreme example of what, what plagues most European banks all over the continent. So what, with the ECB trying to reflate there, do you think that... Oh, that's hopeless. It's hopeless. Hopeless. <laughs> uh, QE in, in your... Put it this way. Zero rates or negative rates, what does that mean? I, I think it means it's, it's created global overcapacity because every stock buyback has been done, every deal's been funded, every PE has been funded, every venture capital has been funded, every startup has been funded. And so what you have is global overcapacity and deflation. So why would anybody think that doing more of the same thing would cause inflation is utterly beyond me. I think what the ECB is doing is a perfect example of trying to do the same thing over and over again and expecting a different outcome. That's the best definition of insanity. But that, that sounds systemically horrendous, um, ultimately. And, I, and the assumption horrendous. is that the central banks can continue to print money, and therefore it doesn't really matter. Is that, is that really, because again, that's the funding argument, because we, ha- we talk about $17 trillion in negative yielding assets all the time. Right, but, that but sounds they, like but a bubble. But they can keep funding, because, I mean, take a look at Japan. Japan's debt to, government debt to GDP is 240%. We're at, I forget where we are now, 125, something like that. So we got two times more to go. And, the, and whose rates are lower? So, I mean, I, I don't understand why, completely why Japan's rates are lower than ours. I just only know that they are, and they have a lot more debt to GDP than we do. So, you know, what causes interest rates to go up in a world of QE is above my pay grade at this point. Steve, what do you, what do you make of, we were just talking about, um, you know, zero interest rates, QE, it's obviously great for people who own risk assets. If you think about what's different this time to, let's say, 20 years ago as far as technology um, valuations are concerned, is that we just saw, you know, some companies come to public markets, and really they were able to be funded by this zero interest rate environment. And I'm thinking of Uber that had an $80 billion valuation. Now it's now about it 50. Okay, and then we had WeWork, you know, that was originally at 47. Bonds at 10%. And might go to Maybe zero, 15. It might Maybe go to zero. Yeah. So my question is, is all these companies were funded by this environment. They're disintermediating massive companies that are public, that are profitable, all that sort of stuff. Is that a bubble? Are we about to see the reckoning of that on the back side? Because well, we're seeing possible some that start. bubble has broken to some degree in that every single IPO, and I'm not picking on anybody, right. you know, Smile Direct, for example, which is, went, I think it went public at 23. Where did it close today? 10, 11, um, so I think the public's, appetite, the public's appetite to take private equity out or venture capital out for companies, no matter how good their ultimate business models may be, but that don't make money, I think is, at least for the moment, is done. Now, what's that going to mean for, for um, Silicon Valley? Maybe it'll mean, God forbid, the companies will have to learn how to make money. Um, some of your other shorts that you've spoken publicly about, Steve, Zillow. Yes. And Tesla. Yes. What is the short? I'm still short both of them. You're still short both of them. Yes. What is the short that you are the most excited about? I'd say those would be two of them. Zillow I and Tesla. I think Zillow, 
has created for itself perhaps the most dangerous business model that I've seen in a very, very, very long time. Because you know, they started house Because they're themselves. flipping houses. Yeah. And, you know, the, the CEO, I think his last name is Barton, is without question a great Internet investor. But I think the, the example of Zillow is a case of genius is not always transferable. So, you know, for example, you know, some people might think I'm a very good investor, but my wife doesn't think I'm too bright when I come home. <laughs> and, um, or you could be a great physicist, but you can't ride a bike. So you could be a great internet platform creator, and I grant you Barton is, but the business of buying homes, flipping them, requires making a good investment decision at a very, very low margin business, and it actually requires managing thousands upon thousands of human beings because the internet is not going to paint the house for you. A person has to do that. The Internet's not going to pull the carpet out of the house. A person has to do that. And this is a business. The problem with the business is that Internet platform companies love to talk about the TAM. They, right. they wax poetic about the TAM. Total and, addressable market. And the total addressable market. And when they announced this, the CEO went on about the TAM for 10 minutes. I mean, it's like poetry. And the problem is there isn't one TAM for residential real estate. There are thousands of local TAMs, and they're all different. And the ability to make mistakes in every single one is very, very high. This is not a business you want to roll out quickly because it's so local. You want to learn from your mistakes. And this company is doing this so aggressively that it's bound to make a lot of mistakes. Are either of these shorts, Tesla or Zillow, are these shorts that you go, that you, basically the bet is that they go out of business in some way? They go bankrupt? Well, that's they go, not my no. bet. I'm okay. not making that bet. I'm not making the bet that Tesla's going to go out of business. I'm making the bet. I mean, it's rare to make, especially in a world of zero rates where everybody gets funded, right. to make a bet that somebody's going to go out of business. I mean, the problem is also when the stock gets to two, chances are it goes to six before it goes to zero. Uh-huh. Do you think there's misrepresentation in either of these stories? In other words, the public is not getting a transparent or an accurate read in the, in the true well, balance sheet story. Well, I think, you know, with respect to Tesla, he likes to pull a shtick every quarter because there are four things that matter with Tesla. There's the deliveries, there's the margins, there's that income, and there's cash flow. And for at least for the last two quarters, what he likes to do is tweet that they're doing very, very well on the, the deliveries, and the uh-huh. stock tends to go up. And then at least the last quarter, the other three variables are terrible, and the stock comes down. So I don't know why that's allowed, right. but that's, he played this game again where he's tweeting how great the deliveries are. We'll see how the rest of the earnings are when he reports. Sure. Um, everybody asks you about what you're short because of big short fame, all that stuff. Right. Um, what's your favorite long? My favorite long is a company called Motorola Solutions, which okay. is a little obscure, um, but it's not a small cap stock. It makes emergency communication equipment right. for police, firemen, etc. You know, what I really like about it is it's very good management. They're well incentivized. It's an oligopoly. It's lightly regulated. Business has gotten better over the last couple of years. I don't have to worry about China. I don't have to worry that much about a recession. It's, kind of, it's, it's about as idiosyncratic a long as you could imagine. Steve, great to see you. Thanks for coming by. Thank you. Steve Eisman, Newberger Berman. Or he could be like me and just have no discernible skills whatsoever. I mean, <laughs> home here doesn't matter. I mean, at least You're he's got something You're never a genius anywhere. Going.
The Deutsche Bank is fascinating. We've been talking about it for a while. I mean, Steve, it's, when I hear Steve talk, he's short it because it's just a bad bank, and that's good enough reason. My concern would be it's not only just a bad bank. You know, there's a, there's a derivatives book there, which could potentially be, I hate using the word catastrophic, but there could be some systemic risk a long way. We'll get, we're going to find out. But I'm with him 100% on Deutsche Bank. Even at current levels, it's still way too expensive. All right. Coming up, United Health surging today. We'll get the traders' take on the big move. Fast Money's back right after this. Welcome back to Fast Money. We've got a news alert on the opioid litigation. Let's get to Meg Terrell at headquarters with the details. Meg. Hey, Mel. Well, the three major drug distributors named in thousands of lawsuits alleging they contributed to the nation's opioid crisis are close to a potential settlement for $18 billion. Now, that's according to reporting from the Wall Street Journal tonight, citing people familiar with the discussions. Now, this comes just days before the first federal trial over the opioid crisis is set to begin Monday in Cleveland, where those companies, along with pharmacies like CVS, Walgreens, and Walmart, are named. Four drug makers have reached settlements with just the two counties involved in that trial, while Teva remains the sole drug maker there. Now, this settlement, though, if it's reached, would address the lawsuits more broadly, according to the journal, and the $18 billion would be paid over 18 years. The paper also reports Johnson & Johnson is involved in the discussions to contribute additional money. Now, shares of the drug distributors, Cardinal Health, McKesson, Amerisource, Bergen, they're up quite a bit in the after hours, probably as the settlement split among the three and paid over 18 years, maybe less than what some on Wall Street had feared. Morgan Stanley in August estimated base case liability for Cardinal at $8.2 billion, McKesson at $10.9 billion and Amerisource Bergen at $6.9 billion. Amerisource Bergen declined to comment tonight while McKesson and Cardinal Health didn't immediately respond. Jane Jade just told us, as its CFO did this morning on Squawk, that it's, quote, open to viable options to resolve these cases, including through settlement. Mel, back over to you. All right, Meg, thank you. Meg Terrell, um, it would be paltry if the three uh, drug distributors and J&J split it over 18 years. Right. 18, bill, uh, 18 billion the, dollars. Was in, that, in those three? Meg said that they okay. might kick in money. Oh, okay. Yes. So, okay. And then you spread that over 18, 18 years, years right. and it's almost so, nothing. Wow. Well, that's, I guess, why they're up so big in the after hours. I'm right. surprised. I would have thought that this has been not priced in this, but the idea that there'd be some sort of global settlement been happening. But that's interesting. Yeah, I think this is, I mean, this is an extraordinary uh, result if it's the final result. Um, I think, again, you have federal dynamics up, up ahead. I, I, you know, I think there will be more people coming forward. I think this is still an overhang, but in the short run, I, you know, I liked J&J yesterday. I like it more today. And Tim is right about J&J, but, uh, you know, McKesson at nine, less than nine times forward earnings, they report on the 30th. If this news, if this is sort of the last bit of news we're going to hear until then, you have to ask the question, do you want to be the shortest name in the earnings? My answer would be no. So I do think there's further room to the upside, and specifically MCK and Cardinal Health as well. All right, let's stick with health care. Check out shares of United Health topping the tape today after crushing the street's earnings and revenue expectations before the bell. raising full-year guidance, strong earnings report might be just one of two potential major catalysts for the stock, the next being Democratic presidential primary debate. That is tonight. And health care, namely Medicare for All, is likely to take center stage. So what do we make of today's move, and what should investors expect from tonight's debate? And I think the real question is here you have an example of the fundamentals for this company look great and yet there are these political headwinds and so which which do you say will reign supreme when it comes to the price action you would stock? hope it's fundamentals because the political stuff is just rhetoric and you can maybe here tonight maybe you won't maybe there'll just be a, a war on capitalism tonight who knows but to answer your original question i mean it's justified and we've talked about united health for a while i'm surprised it's taken this long 
quite frankly, in terms of getting to these levels. And I still think there's room on the upside. But at its trough at 13 times forward earnings at a company that historically trades close to 18, it's just too cheap. And I think this earnings results tells you exactly what you need to know. Well, it's interesting. You know, when you talk about the run this stock has had from the November 2016 election to its highs last year, the stock nearly doubled. And, and, and that was on a lot of politics, right? A lot of um, regulatory and issues being taken away. And so when you think about the downtrend the stock has been in over the last year or so, Maybe it makes sense tonight. I think you'll see a lot of these candidates on a very crowded stage move more towards the center rather than further to the left, which is that Medicare for all. And these stocks should kind of get a bit of a lift on that, I think, over time, unless Warren and Sanders make it very clear that they become the front runners, then these stocks have some issues. But the stock. Sorry, Karen. Uh, well, no, I've long some Anthem. Mm-hmm. I had sold some before. I, I mean, I'd sort of be. This was really good news today. If yeah. their medical loss ratio uh, is anything similar to the kind of progress that United Health has, that's great. Uh, it's cheap on fundamentals. It's cheap to itself. I think it's also priced in a lot of the Warren Sanders rise. If they end up being very strong tonight and the stock trades down tomorrow, I think that would be a good opportunity to buy it. It just seems to me the stock is trading on fundamentals. I mean, how could the stock be rallying on unexpected politics that it doesn't know about? The stock was concerned. Investors were concerned about 2020. This is a company that gave 13 percent growth for 2020 and, and basically said this. We think this is very conservative. So you can't tell me that the stock is moving because they feel better about the political you know, story that, behind this company. They feel better about the fundamentals, which I, I think you can't discount the importance of that really being the story. I think that's what we're all saying because, you know, guys said the politics are going to be what they are. But but UNH was trading down as much about uncertainty about their core business, I think, related to their business now. And and that may change in 2020, but I, I, I stay long the stock. All right. Up next, Netflix is gearing up to report tomorrow and the options market's implying huge moves on the results. We've got much more Fast Money right after this. Coming up, it's a moment of truth for Netflix as it gears up to report earnings tomorrow. And options traders are betting the results could be a showstopper. We will explain. We're live at the Nasdaq in Times Square. Much more Fast Money still ahead. Welcome back to Fast Money. The curtain raises tomorrow on Fang's marquee featured presentation, Netflix, reporting after the bell tomorrow. The stock is down more than 20 percent since it reported back in July. And our next guest says tomorrow's report could pave the way for another show-stopping move. Let's bring in Bonoin Eisen, Managing Director of Equities Derivatives at XP Investments, to break down the options action. Bonoin, great to see you. Welcome back. Likewise. Thanks so much, Melissa. Really so a pleasure. So what are you seeing in the options market in terms of the implied move? Uh, options are implying a pretty pretty decent move here. If you look at the at-the-money straddle, it's implying about an 11% move. That's pretty significant. The last four quarters have moved on average about 5%, the highest of which, which has been 10. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you look at the option volumes, calls and puts, calls are about one and a quarter times puts, but open interest leans more towards the, towards the puts as well. So it's kind of tough to see whether traders are coming in with a bullish or bearish bent. Net-net, people are expecting a volatile move. Okay, so we can't tell from the activity whether or not people are leaning bullish or bearish into the print. Where do you stand on this? Uh, it's, it's tough. You know, as Dan says, you know, these one-up, one-down moves aren't really moves I like to plan, particularly if you look over at historical implied volatility. It's tough to be long options and get this right. You can get the direction right and still end up losing money because the option premium is just so robust. All right. Let's go through the different scenarios. Let's say uh, we get a move to the downside. What do you what do you see then? 
On the back of the three things that they really need to focus on, I would say the most important of which are cash burn and their ability to uh, retain domestic subscribers. If they miss, if you take a look at the chart, mm-hmm. there's like a two-year support channel down around 240, 250. That's going to be a real pressure point in the stock there. That's where I'm looking. Right. And on the upside? On the upside, given all the short interest in the stock, we could see a pretty aggressive move back up, kind of retracing some of the losses that we've experienced this year. So right. pretty volatile. You, yeah. you saw the action. Yeah, Bono Bi- right? makes a great point about that implied move for people looking mm-hmm. to make a directional bet. You can get that, that move to the upside right if you buy the calls, but if you get the magnitude of the room, right. move wrong, it's a really tough one. And like he said, the biggest move over the last four quarters was 10%, and that was last quarter when they had their first ever North American yes. subscriber miss. So I think the likelihood of that sort of happening again is probably not great. But to his point, if they do miss again and North American subs do go lower two consecutive quarters. It's going back to that level that he identified there on the chart. Well, the 11% implied vol takes you right to 245, 250. And and I I just, you know, I think this company has to prove itself again in terms of their profitability, as has been discussed tonight, in terms of their international subs. Um, We we talk about competition all the time, but right now, uh, this is... We can't throw these guys into the same class as a lot of IPOs that don't make money, but they need to make money. They, I think these guys have to be profitable. The cash burn is unacceptable, and I think investors are pushing back. Yeah. We haven't seen yet competition with right? Apple Plus and Disney doesn't only start hear until about it. Yeah. Right, yeah. November 12th mm-hmm. for Disney, I think November 1st for. So we really don't even have one quarter. We have no data we have no of competition. Yeah. Yeah, no data, and I know the Roku news was different today, but you see how quickly these stocks can go back. I mean, Roku was $103. Where did it close today? 138 or so? Mm-hmm. So the other side of that 250 level is sort of 317 give mm-hmm. or take. And oddly enough, that's sort of the 50% retracement of this spring's high, 385 or so, and the recent low that we talked about, that 250 low. So I don't know. It's a coin flip, but I'm more inclined to think that maybe a lot of people flush themselves out and any semblance of good news tomorrow gets us back above 300. Bono and thank you. Thank you so much. Bono and Eisen. For more options, Zach, tune into the live show this Friday, 5.30 p.m. Eastern Time. Up next, Final Trades. Time for the Final Trade, Tim. Like the reaffirmation at United Health 250 is a level. Stay there. Chairwoman. Yeah, looking for ways to hedge the portfolio. Short HYG. If market trades down, this will go down with it. DMZ. Uh, yeah, uh, Lyft looks like it's <laughs> bottoming here into its OCK 30 earnings. Mel, we need the Yankees to score some runs, don't we? Oh, I know. Yeah, it's crazy. Totally. Amgen into their earnings release later this month. See you back here tomorrow at 5 for more fast. Mad Money starts right now. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you. Like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx Ground is faster to more locations than UPS Ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx.